One of the things about the Christian faith that is most difficult to grasp is where the eternal life promised by Jesus, made available by Jesus begins. It's easy when we look at the world around us in its brokenness and in its suffering to see that the fullness of life as God intends it has not yet arrived. And yet there is so much in Scripture that would point to the fact that we can begin to live fully and into eternity, even now. We've been looking at this image of the river in Scripture so far this year. It's a symbol of the fullness of life as God intends it, of the presence of God. And it's a picture which bookends the whole of the Bible. We can find it on probably what is the second or third page of your Bible in Genesis 2. And again, on what is probably the last page of your Bible in Revelation chapter 22. And that's because, as you probably know by now, God always intended that we live by and in the river that is his presence, that is the fullness of life. Where we don't experience the fullness of life, We go back to Genesis 3 to understand that it is because humanity has cut itself off from God's river when we have chosen to live independently from God. Where we look around us and seeing the brokenness and suffering of our world and hope that it might come to an end and anticipate something better, something after, anticipate God's good future. We look to Revelation 22, where we see a picture of a city established by God on earth, through which the river of life once more flows. I don't know about you, but I've always enjoyed exploring creeks, walking up creeks. Even when I was quite young, And it's sort of hard to imagine that parents would let their kids do that these days. Uh, Friends and I would start uh, exploring the creeks at the base of places like Mount Glorious and Mount Nebo and walk our way up them, pick our way up them, exploring, seeing what we could discover as we worked our way up the mountains, up the creek beds. The way that a... uh, a stream or a river works is that a number of tributaries link up to it as it flows out as a singular unified body into the sea. Rivers always converge, they never diverge. In some parts of the world it's actually a recognised pursuit, sort of like hiking, a particular type of hiking that people do. Places like Japan and Taiwan where Uh, groups of people will start at the mouth of a river and see if they can find where that river begins, somewhere upstream and uphill. What's tricky about this, actually, 
is that because of the convergence of different tributaries to join what will eventually become one stream or one river, uh, it can be, uh, there's a possibility that you can pick the wrong tributary. The headwaters of a river are generally a body of water. Uh, it might be a lake, it could be a spring that bubbles up in the hills. But in different environments, whether it's a snowy environment or a more sort of uh, tropical one, subtropical like we've got, uh, some of those tributaries only flow seasonally. Uh, in a cold environment, snow melt will happen and depending on where the snow has fallen, different streams will run. Here in the subtropics, in the foothills behind Brisbane, uh, it might be flash floods that form channels down the sides of mountains. And the thing is, some of those flow hardly ever, whether it's the snowy ones or the ones in warmer climates like this. Some of them sort of, they'll flood once in a blue moon. There's so many dry gullies that look like creek beds in the hills around Brisbane. And so it's possible then that looking for that spring that would flow into the river, we can go up sort of blind gullies. We can get confused because there's places where in a drier season, uh, the, the, the creek that is spring fed isn't obviously flowing above the surface, but the water sort of leaches through the creek bed underneath. You can come to a fork exploring a creek like this, pick the wrong one and find yourself not moving towards the spring which ultimately feeds the river, but moving up just to a dry spot, isolated spot somewhere up in the hills that's flowed once or twice, but isn't really the river, so to speak. It's just a dry gully. I was thinking about this because we've had these words recently, these sermons preached about um, ways that we can get caught up away from the river of God. And um, there was that great sermon by Joy about the billabong. Uh, I talked a few weeks ago about the difference between a well and a river. And I was speaking with Joy recently Joy Greats, that is, and she asked me a question along the lines of, what does it look like for us to be the river people? What does it mean for us to actually be living in his presence? How could we tell from the way that we live, the way that we meet, the way that we worship? And I had to answer her honestly and say that I'm not actually entirely sure, but this is the journey that we are on. This is what I think we're trying to find out this year. If we decide that we want to be river people, if we decide that we want to live in the presence of God more fully and have this life abundant, what does that look like? What do we have to do? As I've thought and prayed about this, it's made sense to me that part of answering this question, what does it look like to be God's river people, is to identify the source of the river, to be able to trace the creek that we might be in back to that spring which feeds the river of God. Now, of course, on one level, the answer to that question should be simple. It's God, right? God is the source. Duh. But what makes it tricky is that I look around 
not here at Cornerstone necessarily, but I look around the world and I see people picking their way up dry gullies, sure that they are on the track to God. And it seems to me that they're just on their way to a dry, isolated nowhere, some up in, somewhere up in the hills. And what makes it even harder is that as I go along, sometimes I find myself in the midst of seasons, and I think we all do, when there isn't any obvious water flowing. And I'm wondering, am I walking up a dry gully here? Or is this just a dry section of the creek which will eventually lead me to the river's source? But if we knew what and where the source was, we would orientate ourselves towards it. We would always be able to tell whether we were in the right gully, in the right creek. I've been getting so much encouragement from reading the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ recently. And that's maybe a better name for the book of Revelation uh, than what we call it. Sometimes people call it Revelations. Actually, the name comes from the first line of the book where it says this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. I've been getting so much encouragement from that book. And yes, <laughs> um, I do uh, realize that it's not always the most encouraging book for people. Um, partly because as I've read it, I've realized it's not a revelation of how wars are going to roll out in the future or, you know, who is going to be the final superpower in history. But it's a revelation of Jesus above all of those things. And I need a revelation of Jesus. Because if I knew where the source was, I'd know if I was in the right gully. We have looked to the 22nd chapter of Revelation over the course of this year because it has this picture of the river. It says in Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the streets of that great city. Here, we have the source sort of pinpointed for us, the throne of God from which the river of life flows. And it identifies that those who occupy that throne are God and the Lamb, Jesus. It says in Colossians 1 that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And for, that, for us, that means that if we want a picture of who God is, we only need to look to Jesus. God can be difficult to get our heads around at times. We might not really know whether we can actually really conceive of him. And maybe that makes it difficult sometimes to know whether we're identifying him correctly, whether we're thinking of him in the correct terms. But here the scripture says, if we want to know who God is, we look to Jesus. Likewise, in John 14, it says uh, that Jesus said to his disciple Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
That's verse 9. Reading the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are drawn into this story where John, who's exiled on the island of Patmos, talks about having this kind of prophetic vision unroll for him in which Jesus reveals something to him. It says in Revelation um, 1, verses 12 to 6, I, John, turn round to see the voice that was speaking to me. So this revelation begins, this apocalypse, this revealing begins, where John hears a voice drawing him into this vision, into this prophecy. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and amongst the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe that reached down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing with fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. It's a strange place to hold a sword but nevertheless this is what it says his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance it occurs to me that there's a lot of different pictures of jesus and part of the trick of identifying whether we know where the source is whether we're in the right gully is to know what jesus looks like i have seen pictures of white Jesus. I've seen pictures of black Jesus. I have um, seen Jesus furled in the American flag. I've seen Jesus with an Israeli flag over his shoulders. I have uh, heard about Jesus being touted at KKK rallies. I have heard about Jesus being spoken of uh, amongst communists and anarchists. What picture of Jesus am I to have <laughs> when there's so many competing pictures of Jesus? Well, here I suggest that John is seeing a picture of Jesus that draws him in. Jesus that he recognises from the Old Testament. The language uh, of this vision of Jesus, the one um, who uh, speaks with a booming voice, uh, who's white as snow, uh, the one who is identified here as the son of man, is a picture that comes out of the prophecies of the Old Testament, mostly Daniel, a little bit um, of Ezekiel in there as well. And it's like John knows who he's looking at when he sees this son of man character, seeing the Messiah, Son of God, his Saviour. Chapters 1 to 3 of Revelation roll from this point as a message to the churches, seven churches in the Asian province of the Roman Empire. This is a particularly sort of nationalistic 
uh, section of the Roman Empire where the cult of the Roman Emperor was very strong. And um, John sort of relays these messages to these various churches commenting on how they're going. But we pick up in the fourth chapter of John, of Revelation, and it's like Jesus is saying to John, I'm going to reveal more to you. I'm going to reveal more to you of who I am and the mystery of the world as it's going to unfold. And there's this amazing vision in the fourth chapter of John, uh, of Revelation, uh, of John's Revelation, uh, with a throne in the middle of heaven and with these elders and powerful angels and a whole heap of weird stuff basically for us as 21st century Western readers. But anyway, it's the throne of God where worship of the one who sits on that throne is happening eternally. And then after this insight that it says Jesus has given John into heaven and into the throne room of God, it's like the focus shifts to this scroll. And again, this is kind of weird stuff. This is uh, symbolic language um, from uh, you know, ancient times, a, co a context we might struggle to understand. But anyway, this scroll, which is a bit mysterious, um, Revelation points to being a picture of something that is connected with the ending of the kingdoms of this world, Rome being one of them, and a transition into the kingdom of God. You might remember uh, a, a phrase that gets sung from Revelation 11 where it says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. That is the moment when the scroll which John sees is unfurled and opened. So the scroll and the opening of the scroll, which becomes the focus of Revelation 5, is about this transition from worldly kingdoms to the kingdom of God. And as John is seeing into heaven and into the very throne room, of God, he hears this question, it's being asked by an angel, who is worthy to bring about this transition from the kingdoms of the world to the kingdom of God? Who could possibly make this happen? Who could open the scroll? Then, Revelation says in chapter 5, one of the elders that attends to this throne room says to John, don't worry, you know the answer to that question. There is only one who could make that transition, who could open the scroll. You know who it is. It's the one prophesied in Israel's scriptures. It says it's the Lion of Judah, the descendant of King David. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, see the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And John has us leaning in now because it's like the text is saying, like Jesus is saying to John, I'm going to reveal more. I'm going to reveal more. I'm going to show you more at this point. John 
it seems, is going to see more clearly than anyone else has ever seen. Who can open the scroll? Who Jesus is? John is going to look more clearly than anyone ever on the Lion of Judah, on Israel's great king, on the one who is the image of God, on the one who, if we've seen him, we've seen God the Father, the one who sits on the eternal throne. He's going to see the who in this moment. And it says in verse 6 that John looks upon the throne for the revelation in this moment of that who what Jesus looks like. Verse 6 of chapter 5. Then I saw a lamb. And the word actually isn't just lamb, it's probably best translated as lamblet, like a little lamb, a tiny, new, little fluffy lamb. Then I saw a lamblet looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by all of this worshipping creation that lives there and attends to him in the throne room. John's expecting the lion, the king, the one with white hair with the booming voice, the one that all of the prophets and his scripture has pointed to. And he sees this tiny little lamb. Have you ever seen a lamb? It's no wonder they're used as a picture for innocence and joy. And there's nothing threatening about a tiny little lamb. They seem entirely vulnerable and pure. And that's what John sees. And what's more, it's a lamb that's been killed somehow. Innocence crushed taken away a, a tiny little lamb and thrown as much as Jesus reveals more to John throughout the book of Revelation never really wavers from this picture of himself as the wounded lamblet Jesus' revelation to John was written to Christians in these churches in the Roman Empire who were about to undergo a great persecution at the hands of the beastly Roman Empire, an empire which hated them and their faith. And it was written to encourage them that no matter how bad things got, God had it all in hand and that the kingdom of God would and will win out over the beastly kingdoms of the world, even that unprecedented kingdom that they lived under, the Roman Empire. And what Revelation's saying here, it's answering the question, how could this happen? How is God going to win over the worldly empires? Who could possibly do that? Who could be up to that task? And Revelation, which uses this picture of the Lamb more than any other picture for God, for Jesus, 
It says a little lamb will do that in the face of the might of earthly, beastly empires. A lamb that had been slain has the power to bring in the kingdom of God. So, the picture of the strength and power of God, the clearest picture we could have of who our Lord is, is this tiny, crushed creature. Should be frolicking in fields, but somehow been the subject of violence. And we know that that picture is picked because Jesus, in fact, did not summon all the strength of heaven as a creator of the universe to fight the kings and emperors of this world with their weapons, with brute force. But he chose to lay down his life giving it for his enemies and those who hate him. And so, whatever the picture that we might have of who Jesus is, if it doesn't resonate and align with that, it's possible we might be travelling up a dry creek bed that goes to nowhere, a gully that'll end up in a piece of scrub of no concern. For the very spring that is the source of the river of life is the one who would lay down his life for his enemies. I can't do that. I mean, I'm supposed to be a disciple of that man, of that lamb. And um, I can kind of get my head around building up my strength, around winning people to a cause. But I can't get my head around laying down my life for those who hate me. I hate them back. <laughs> I'm not even good at loving my friends a lot of the time. As I was thinking about this, though, I, I think that this is the key, actually. My thoughts were drawn to Hebrews 5, where it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin therefore let us boldly approach the throne of God so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need I think we orientate ourselves to the source to that lamb when we recognize that we're not up to it that we need him that we need his grace. Hey church, I'm going to leave it there for us this morning. But this is my challenge to you. The picture in your head of God needs to be a wounded lamb if you want to stay following the source.